0: good morning morning. morning. welcome to ordinary life and um, would you make sure um, if you have one of these things that it's in the do not disturb silent quiet vibrate stun mode whatever it needs to be so that you don't disturb the people around you Um, and as you know if you those of you who are present thank you for being here and sometimes, if you just look around, you'll see the four people that's required to make it possible for those of you who are online. And uh, I'm glad for the technology that makes this possible. I have been reading a new book by Dara Murakou. Hmm. How'd I do? I In
1: think pronouncing his name sort of better
0: than last time. Sort of, okay. Yeah. Sort of better than last time. On the, uh, the aftermath of the pandemic and, and um, You know we are we're fortunate in that people are coming out in person a lot of people aren't and it's staggering how many places particularly places of worship shuttered their doors forever because of the pandemic and so we're very we're very fortunate in that regard anyway thank those people back there who make this possible thank you and I'm not going to say anything to make those of you who are not here in person, but who could be, feel any guiltier oh my than you goodness. already should. I got all that gift from my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Told me, about like, so.
1: so your mother says, my get, mother, get your butt to church. Uh,
0: my mother was, okay. you know, be sweet, William. I was afraid. <laughs> and remember who you are. Did you ever hear that growing up? Remember? Like, how in the world would you forget? Wear clean, Wear clean underwear in case of an accident, which I thought dirty underwear was an accident. But you never know. Does that go in the, the jar? <laughs> yeah, I was telling Holly at the beginning that um, there's a proposal in the sacristry across the way when the clergy gather for worship. The proposal was put forward today that they create, you know what a swear jar is? You know, you swear you put money in the jar. The proposal is that they were going to create a curly joke jar for the sacristy, so that every time I make a joke in the sacristy, I have to put money in it. Yes. I think it would be better if other people put the money in it as a sign of gratitude. <laughs> so the 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 one that I told in the sacristy. Oh today,
1: my gosh!
0: <laughs> today was that last night I made some fish tacos. At first, the fish seemed interested, and then they just swam away. <laughs> you can see why yeah. they want to start a jar. Okay, yeah. let's uh, begin in silence. Be here and be present. Be awake. And um, I will read the Gallic prayer. By the way, that um, the origin of this, I said, but. For those of you who don't know, uh, I heard the St. Paul's Choir do a version of this and I loved it so much that I adapted it and started using it in my own daily spiritual practice and then decided to share it here and have been doing that. So let's use it. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouth and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our at our end and in our departing. Amen. Amen. So my hope is that you get what you're looking for here today, with the interesting time plan, that you get knowledge and information and grow in wisdom and understanding and that you leave here in a better place, a more peaceful and loving place, because you can make a difference in the places where you go on this planet. So we honor truth, love, and freedom in this place, and we do so with the belief that what we do matters. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are are welcome welcome here. here. So, for several weeks now, the theme in here has been awareness, and um, did I create that? Uh, Awareness is the first step on and the door through which we pass on the human journey to wholeness, and this is a journey only in the sense that we become increasingly aware and open to our already given identity. Now, that may sound confusing, but that's okay because I don't want to contribute to the illusion that our puny minds can grasp what we're talking about. Hmm. We make hints about the transcendence and about mystery that I call grace, but as we grow in our awareness, the goal is to become self-consciously, not ego-consciously, present to presence. And to do that in a way that is open and honest and with a willingness to change our behavior so that our lives more and more conform to what St. Paul called the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you as as is in the mind of Christ. So last week when I ended, I used a line from Carl Jung that I love a lot when Carl Jung was asked, do you believe in God? And he said, no, I know God. And then I offered Jung's definition of God. Let's see, I didn't get to that. You'll find out why I'm so poorly prepared in a minute. (laughs) Jung's definition of God. Um, One of his definitions, which of course is impossible to put into words. "To, To this day, God is the name by which I designate all things, which cross my willful path violently and recklessly. All things which upset my subjective views, plans, and intentions, and change the course of my life for better or worse. Now, likely these are not the most comforting words that you have (laughs) received to describe sacred mystery, but they do capture something about the essence of our time. So Holly Hudley and I have this agreement that we are going to teach together at least once a month, and last Sunday, at either the end or the beginning? The beginning. At the beginning of class, I walked by her where she was sitting over here, and I said, next Sunday, I want you to carry the burden. <laughs> it was just there a smart-ass go. thing that I am tend to prone to say from time to time. Little did I know at mm-hmm. that time that she would actually end up needing to do that. One of the reasons that uh, my beautiful bride is not here today is that on thursday she tripped and fell and broke her left arm right here and so we are awaiting a visit with the orthopedic surgeon in the morning to see what the intervention will be to deal with that she is in a lot of pain and uh, fortunately we have people who were uh, stay with her and take care of her and like some of the kids in my Montrose neighborhood say thank God for drugs <laughs> because um, it really it, when, when we saw the x-rays and a cat scan uh, it was not pretty so I don't know what they're gonna do but uh, that happened and I screamed to Holly and said um, teach <laughs> I'm gonna sit here. I have some things to say. I uh-huh. will heckle.
1: Okay. Yeah, heckle. got <laughs> yeah, your bag of peanuts. Throw some
0: things at you. Yeah.
1: Well, lucky for you, for so many years, I, I'm a chronic journaler anyway. But in this class, I always bring a journal, and some and sometimes. Is, is that
0: part of your daily spiritual practice?
1: I. It is sometimes. <laughs> um, and so I write down a lot of notes, or and over the years, I could probably write a book over ordinary life teachings from my journal sometimes it's like what in the hell did he mean by that Um, so there's some there's some tangents as well so from last week one of the things that caught me was this idea of hope and how do we find hope in what feels increasingly like a hopeless world we're coming out of the sort of heightened tension of a global pandemic it's been An interesting, to say the least, couple of years. And we, you know, gun violence is out of control, racism is alive and well, climate change is impacting the entire globe. So, how do we live with hope beyond our often very solo, very private spiritual practice? I came up with the idea of talking about participatory hope. How do we participate or engage with or activate hope in weaving together these concepts of faith, hope, and love in action, not just as ideas? So I will frame this teaching with a story. I wanted to find a story that encompassed all three, faith, hope, and love. And I've loved this one from Howard Thurman for a very long time. He was um, He's now deceased, was a mystic who began a church for all people and it was an intentional, intersectional, interracial, intercultural church in San Francisco during the height of segregation. So his story goes, when I was a boy, I came upon an old man. I watched him for a long time. He was so busily engaged in a task that he did not notice my approach until he heard my voice. Then he raised himself erect with all the slow dignity of a man who had exhausted the cup of haste to the very dregs." What a beautiful line. He was an old man, as I discovered before our conversation was over a full 81 years. Further talk between us revealed that he was planting a small grove of pecan trees. The little treelets were not more than two and a half or three feet in height. My curiosity was unbound. Why, sir, did you not select larger trees so as to increase the possibility of your living to see them bear at least one cup of nuts. He fixed his eyes directly on my face with no particular point of focus, but with a gaze that took in the totality of my features. Finally, he said, these small trees are cheaper and I have very little money. So you do not expect to live to see the trees reach sufficient maturity to bear fruit? No? But is that important? All my life, I have eaten fruit from trees that I did not plant. Why should I not plant trees to bear fruit for those who may enjoy them long after I am gone? Besides, the man who plants because he will reap the harvest has no faith in life. Mm. I love that story. And it encompasses all three faith, he plants a seed. Hope, the trust that someone two or 300 years from now, if this seed fruits, will eat the fruit of that tree. And then love, he passes down wisdom to a little boy.
0: I love that story too. Um, you plant trees under whose shade you know you will not sit mm-hmm. is a real act of faith, mm-hmm. hope, and, and love. Mm-hmm. And you know, after I had seen, after and we talked, And and after I'd seen what you had, um, much of what you'd written, I gave a title to this class, which uh, is Never Lose Infinite Hope. And I want to tell you the background of that title, how I got onto that title. Um, I have bragged in here that I don't watch commercial television, and that's more or less true. I try to avoid it as much as I can. There are a few shows that I like, that I uh, record. You can tell my age when I say that I tape these shows.
1: <laughs> and that you still have a VHS recorder.
0: <laughs> um, but I, I record Stephen Colbert, I like that. There are a few other things. Masters of Illusion, the magic show, I like that. And But you know, I get the New York Times daily feed, I get the CNN daily feed. I get other things because of what I uh, subscribe to, uh, Spiritual Journal International and a number of other things, progressive Christianity, and you cannot help being assaulted by what's out there in in, in the news. Um, so I, I find it ironic, our culture's obsession with certain things. Despite the earthquake in Turkey and the devastating toll in turkey and syria and the ongoing horror in ukraine the disasters brought by all sorts of weather anomalies too much rain not enough rain all sort of thing the news this week this past week we have been assaulted by the news about the alex murdoch's murder trial (coughs) you couldn't turn anywhere without that that being there Mm-hmm. So, because of what I refer to as our electronic umbilical cords, <laughs> I hate it, I can't do without it mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, we're rarely out of, out of uh, any kind of space of not being hit by some bit of information about the health of our democracy. The health of our community—you know, there's news about Texas, uh, the state taking over HISD, mm-hmm. um, the 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 healthcare system, the health of our planet—about so much, you you just can't help but being aware of it. And so, because of that, it's easy to lose touch with the uh, the reality of human love and the reality of. Um, Human grace and and hope. I mean, I I saw it yesterday when we um, participated in Jeannie Martin's son, Jerry and Jeannie Martin's son's memorial service here at St. Paul's. The church was packed. And, um, you know, according to that thing that Jim Bankson offered us the opportunity to do, to look for signs of hope, that was certainly one of them. And it was a sign of hope Thursday night when we gathered to hear Susanna Eschel. Mm -hmm. a mixed group of interfaith peoples, having some of us having dinner together before the event, which is wonderful. The work that ordinary women do um, and how that's permeated the community. That's a great, great thing. And then listening to Dr. Estrell, I should say, listening to Susanna talk about her father's involvement with Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, I've got a collection of King, Sermons like most ministers do. He was a great preacher. He was a great writer. And um, I, I think that, you know, his letter from a Birmingham jail is one of the high watermarks of uh, Protestant Christianity expression in this country. Anyway, I thought of a phrase that, that um, Martin Luther King used in one of his sermons. He's got a lot of memorable quotes. He said in this sermon, We must accept finite disappointment but we must never lose infinite hope. I have hope for this gathering that we find in ongoing and useful ways a theology that connects us to each other and also helps raise our sense of awareness and willingness to take responsibility for how we care for each other and how we care for this earth and is all, all that is upon it. Now, I may not be right about this, but I think that as a pastor, as a spiritual counselor, as a spiritual director, I am probably exposed to more than most of you, to the people who on a daily, basis are struggling and with no shortage of good reasons. A fact of life is that life can be cruel and, and unkind, and we do, as Holly said. We got a lot of problems to deal with, and some of them, which we can talk about later, I feel pretty hopeless about, like gun violence mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be fixable. So, especially in this time, I think we need checking in with each other and letting each other know how we're doing. Um, There are values that Holly is bringing up today, which consistently practice, faith, hope, and love, and honesty will lead to healing. Now, that's my faith. That's my, my hope. Now, the practical application of this is this. Look around you right now. Notice each other. Have a space at the beginning or end of this time to ask the person sitting next to you, "How are you doing?" Notice when you look around you, who's not here. And uh, if you have the capacity and and uh, desire willingness, call them up this afternoon and check on them, see how they're doing. It's as simple as that. How are you doing?
1: So one of the things that you talk a lot about in here is that faith is the opposite of certainty. Right. And yet so many of us crave certainty over at least something in our lives, especially from what we've come through over the last couple of years. And I can imagine that there might be an increased anxiety around what we have control over. We go through enormous pains to order our lives and line them up in such a way that they're predictable and easy to manage. We keep calendars, uh, book our days hour by hour. It's one way of exacting control over our lives. I'm not suggesting it's bad. I do it too. (laughs) But, and I'm not suggesting that you make a coffee date at 9 and then just don't show up just to let go of needs for control or certainty. (laughs) We, We live in a chaotic cosmos. We need some way to find a place. And yet, I'm simply offering that we try to exact this control where we live in a world with very little that is actually in our control. So how can we live with more faith? Takes a little bit of faith just to get up in the morning, just to arrive here, just to get out of your house. At least for me, I think I'm struggling in the last couple of years with kind of a a, a deep introversion (laughs) and a kind of inertia around re-establishing social patterns, re-establishing even connective patterns. But I'm going to provide two possibilities for faith today. And there are others, but these are just two, in a way that we may begin to practice faith. One of the things that faith encompasses is curiosity. Curiosity is key to human becoming. It's key to human creativity. Without it, we never would have looked at the stars and thought, I wonder where those come from. I wonder how they got there. We would not have the manifold stories and poems and traditions, including this one, that make up meaning in our lives. Curiosity is soft. It's humble it invites us to sit with this simple phrase, I wonder. That could be a daily spiritual practice. I wonder. And just what shows up. And the second is, I think, much harder for us. It's uncertainty. Certainty is so tied to our need to belong. So often we show up in spaces where we're certain we have a place, where we're certain we know how people feel about us. Very rarely do, Uh, Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Do we show up in spaces where we know we're gonna feel uncomfortable? I have, for example, never heard of the church of what if. (laughs) Similarly, most of us operate in circles where our beliefs, uh, political or religious, socioeconomic class, race and background are pretty comfortably represented. At least we can sort of look around a room and perceive that they're comfortably represented. To practice uncertainty is, in some ways, to learn to unlearn. So to unlearn what we thought we knew, and to unbelong, to be willing to enter into some amount of discomfort.
0: So um, I noticed that there are some uh, several clergy in this gathering today. Um, thank you for being here. And I don't know what your experience has been, but mine is that um a lot of the books that i was assigned to read in seminary didn't make any sense to me until about 40 years later (laughs) you know like in the 60s i was required to read the cloud of unknowing i didn't understand a word of it because i didn't have enough life experience another book that was assigned in uh, graduate school in my doctoral program was a book by Um, Rudolf Otto called the idea of the holy I didn't understand that either but I pretended that I did so that I could graduate (laughs) Rudolf Otto was a really interesting man Uh, I found out later thank goodness I kept the the book he was a German Lutheran pastor he died the year I was born 1937 and I think he was killed by a dinosaur It could have been. You you never know. I mean, and I I always wondered, I still sometimes do, how the German culture could produce these such brilliant philosophers and theologians and scientists. I mean, think of what they've contributed in so many ways and also be the culture where such a heinous thing as the Holocaust could come up. The best-read people on the earth... You wonder, being academically smart is necessarily not the cure thing. But the book that he wrote on the idea of the holy um, stirs up my response to what Holly has said. Um, by the way, Rudolf Otto is the man who came up with the idea of the numinous. If you've ever heard of that phrase, he's responsible for that. The numinous is where we have this feeling of sacred presence that the you know, be able to put our finger on the whys of it, but say, that kind of that sacred space. And Rudolf Otto, uh, he was also a huge influence on Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think
1: also Dietrich Bonhoeffer?
0: Uh, yeah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, he was a very, very influential uh, human being. And do you doubt any of the stuff that I'm saying? I don't blame you, but <laughs> if you doubt any of it, go look it up for yourself and see. You can look up Otto and Wikipedia or any of those, those things. I will tell you, uh, this is not a book recommendation, he is very difficult to read, uh, but his ideas of the holy were what I, I responded to in, uh, in Holly's writing. He, he said that when you encounter sacred mystery that there are two responses that he referred to as mysterium tremendum and I'm going to mispronounce this next phrase, and mysterium facianons. On the the one hand, there is this awesome, overpowering experience of the fear of the Lord, meaning not being afraid of, but the awe of it is just overpowering. And then it is also that in, oh, but that's so intriguing. You know, it's like Sherry looking down the side of the Grand Canyon, and me going, "Oh!" And she's saying, "Let's ride a mule down there.
1: <laughs> Let's jump."
0: So there is this attractiveness that is stirred up in spite of the anxiety of, uh, uh, about it, uh, about what might be provoked. So that's what you're dealing with when when Holly is saying that there is this fascination, there is this curiosity. Uh, about being attracted, and and also um, being awestruck. Well,
1: the word numinous is also a, also like a boundary crossing, right? Like as soon as you engage with something unknown, you've crossed a boundary. You've crossed into this liminal space of in betweenness, mm-hmm. which was a theme in here for mm-hmm. a while. <laughs> um, and, you, and one of the ways that that I have tried to practice uncertainty is by saying I don't know to my children. It's so tempting to want to have an answer for everything, especially to ease a child's anxiety or to ease your own an- sorry, anxiety as a parent to, to, to want to know, to want to be the wise one. And it, it's a bit of a gift to me to, get, to say to them, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. One of the learnings that was more or less implied about being white, for example, was that it was just normal, that being white is just human. And another was that I was lucky. It was not explicitly said that other people were abnormal or inhuman or unlucky, but the implication was there. In fact, many people in my immediate circle thought it would be racist to even say the word white. If you said white, that was racist. If you say black, it was whispered, as if it were a bad word. So the absurdity of that, just think about that for a minute. The, first of all, just is, a, is such a loaded word. It's just normal. You're just human. I'm just joking. <laughs> think about when someone teases you, and then they try to knock it off by saying, I'm just joking, relax. right? Just is a loaded word. (laughs) And, you know, so the implication there that someone like my husband is less normal, less human, less lucky than I am is totally absurd. Or that my children are. My point is that normalcy as a white upper middle class woman is a certainty that I've had to unlearn. And I'm still unlearning it. I'm still unlearning the ways that it operates in me to make me think that I know what the world is about. Um, I had to unlearn that what that I had what I thought was the most correct way to think, act, dress, speak. Right? And so I've had to take on this capacity to say, I wonder what it's like to be not me. I wonder what it's like to be someone else in a completely different context. That could be true in for anyone in here too. But in the context of the royal we of whiteness, we go, I wonder what it's like to be not that. It's no less normal. I want to acknowledge that there's something deeply unsettling about unlearning certainties, because once we begin to question them, we find ourselves in that numinous or liminal space of unbelonging. I've asked too many questions to still be comfortable in that group, but I'm not totally over to the other side yet, right? So this unbelonging is a scary place, and in some ways this class has been a comfortable place to be in that question. I'm grateful for that. It's what happens, though, when we start to realize that we don't agree with some of the unspoken or spoken rules that were passed down to us. We can't unsee them. We can't unsee new learnings, but we don't yet have new patterns established. That's what it is to live in uncertainty, not knowing what our new patterns are. In choosing unbelonging, sitting with the uncertainty and the insecurity of that, we can become more curious. So uncertainty helps us practice curiosity. Curiosity helps us practice uncertainty. These are tied in a loop. There's a deeper belonging, and I really, really believe that because I've felt it even rarely. There's a deeper belonging to which we already innately belong. We all belong, despite our differences. Maybe I should say inclusive of our differences. We all belong. The mystics wrote about this. They knew what it was to belong to this deeper belonging. And one of my favorites, Hafiz, wrote, Let's go deeper, go deeper. For if we do, our spirits will embrace and interweave. Our union will be so glorious that even God will not be able to tell us apart. Uh, that's the one that your nose is bigger than mine, yes. puppies. I love that one.
0: <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. uh, I would just say that the, the mystic that has become popular in the last, ten or fifteen years, Meister Eckhart, mm-hmm. one of his primary uh, teachings is about movement in the spiritual life. And it's so difficult to talk about this because, again, the, pr- the pilgrimage, the p- journey, is not to get somewhere where we already are. It's, in a, it's a journey of realization, right? It's not a journey of, and this is what I'm going to talk about next next week we are blessed with the good news that there's nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. Because think about it, and I'll elaborate on this next week, one of the problems with Protestant organized Christianity is that it's taught that salvation is all about elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's after you die, or it's a place to get to when you're good enough, or the journey of perfection. It's here. And Meister Eckhart kept saying, it's all about letting go, unknowing, unknowing. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Uh, I will just say this is a huge part of my own journey, that uh, when I was teaching in seminary, I knew a lot. Mm. Mm. I mean, seriously, I was, I was smart. But you go through some life tragedies, like a divorce and some important people in you die, in your life die, and, and you get fired from jobs and, you know, minor things like that. And you begin to realize that the effort to hang on to is really what's costing you your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So here's one way to practice faith is go plant a seed. Literally, go plant something. You have to take care of it. But you can plant it and you can watch something happen. So we move to hope and this is, I think hope is so hard to talk about because it can feel really flimsy. It can feel really like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today when the thunderclouds are rolling. You know, hope feels hard and it it is so hard right now because of what we're currently experiencing, the intensity of this time. And we're in a pivotal moment in some ways in our nation's history and in our global. history and i confess to having many moments of hopelessness over the last 10 years or so emily dickinson wrote we know this one right hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all i love that emily dickinson doesn't use periods it's like there's no finality to her words you know it's just a dash you you continue that sentence and And even though hope is the hardest to talk about, it also like grabs hold of us. I think we can't help but be hopeful or want to pursue it. It's the undercurrent of why we're here at all. And yet it feels so precarious because it can float away. I suppose every generation in every lifetime has had a number of pivotal moments in its own history. And, and we are in one. We have our own personal pivotal moments and we have our sort of collective pivotal moments. And we're in a collective pivotal moment.
0: So, um, Casey Kelly is sitting here and Casey designed uh, a shirt, a t-shirt for me, uh, a t-shirt for all of us, but we just haven't brought it to fruition yet. We're working on yeah. it.
1: <laughs> the next um, bestseller. <laughs> and it,
0: it shows the, you know, the Albert Durer praying hands? holding an AK-47. You don't like that? And, and on the t-shirt it says, fundamentalism. Didn't you relief. get
1: some like a positive comment from someone that you must-
0: I, I wore that shirt one Sunday, um, to, and we went out to do our usual Sunday afternoon thing, including a run. The, on this Sunday, I don't usually go to Starbucks, we went to Starbucks, and there was a woman in Starbucks uh, on her laptop, as uh, was everybody else, and she just kept staring and staring and staring at me And I'm in a t-shirt. in a T-shirt. I don't know whether she thought that I was advertising a new religion. Yeah. It is. It's the religion of our culture. I mean, you hear this every day, but I, I mean, uh, there have been more. Uh, gun, gun deaths are the leading cause of childhood death in this country. There has been a mass shooting more than every day so far this year in this country. Yep. Every day. What they qualify as a mass shooting. Four or more killed and or killed. Every single day. And I feel hopeless about this. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we can do to make this different. To make it... Uh, a otherwise. I don't know what the pivotal moment for us would have to be. I think, you know, if the United States went to a psychiatrist for a diagnosis, it would be we have a a psychosis as a country about guns. Mm -hmm. It's killing us and we don't see it. Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. can't deal with it? I don't know. I'll also mention um, Jim Bankson's Uh, suggestion on Ash Wednesday that you keep a hope journal every day write down some concrete positive experience that you have with hope every day now this is a more difficult thing than you might think but I challenge you to make that part of your Lenten discipline every day write down something that happened maybe the day before that you can look at and see as as a sign of hope. It's a good discipline.
1: Well, the other tricky thing I think about hope is that sometimes it can take the form of denial, where if we're also not in reality with what is, then we can sort of hope against it without being in reality. And so it's this, again, liminal space of finding hope while also being in reality with what is. And to illustrate that, I, I, I firmly believe that hope is intergenerational. It's the planting a tree that you will never see flower. And I have a story about a potential ancestor of mine. And the reason I say potential is because um, evidently, it's, it's a long story, but I, we have a well-documented aspect of my paternal lineage in the Chandler Family Association, whose first ancestor was here in 1609. And so goods and bads of all of that. But she's an asterisk on this family association because she never married and she never had children. So she's mentioned once as an offspring, but any accomplishment, anything about her, is like you click on her name and it takes you to a whole nother site because she can't be documented through the paternal line because she didn't marry and she didn't pass on the name. So she just sort of gets cut off. That's its own thing, <laughs> But so that's why she's asterisked. <laughs> So ancestry, as we know, is not matriarchal in this country. And Elizabeth Margaret Chandler grew up for a time in Pennsylvania. She was born there. And as a young woman, somewhere in her teenage years, moved with her brother to Michigan. She was a Quaker. And the the Quakers were renowned for their stance on abolition and anti-slavery. In 1825, so she was born in 1807, In 1825, at age 18, she published a poem called The Slave Ship, Denouncing Slavery, and began to, and and it's kind of incredible that even her poetry was captured during that time because of how rare it was for a woman to receive any kind of literary notoriety. She began to uh, routinely contribute to some abolitionist periodicals. She made the stance that she neither bought nor ate goods that were cultivated by enslaved people including cut the thread that she used to sew her clothes together so that that's that was at that time an expensive life that she did not have the paternal contribution of money to be able to live fully but she she dedicated herself to buying only free goods she made a sacrifice and she made a sacrifice not just with her money but with her time and with her her art she And the reason I say this is hopeful is because she was participating in this unheard of idea of abolition, of freedom. It did not exist in her lifetime. But she went, like, to a future place, and she said, what is the world I want to live in? And she did everything she could to try and live in that world, even though she never saw the tree in her lifetime. She helped start something called the Logan Female Anti-Slavery Society and established a link to the Underground Railroad and that went into camp. It's funny, when we say the Underground Railroad, I literally get a picture of a railroad. <laughs> and, um, and so it's, Colson Whitehead wrote a wonderful book about the Underground Railroad in which he imagines that it actually is an Underground Railroad. <laughs> so I, I get that picture that, oh no, she, she was a stop on the train, but we know that these were really just safe houses where Um, enslaved people could stop and stay and get to the next place of freedom. She and her female comrades called for the total integration of blacks into society and worked on behalf of humane treatment for Native Americans. So in a time when women were not taken seriously as leaders, writers, and change makers, she insisted, again, radical imagination, an act of hope that women were in a most unique position and she quotes to give the first bent to the minds of those who at some future date will become their country's counselors 1825 the medallion here was like a, a but one that was both sold to raise funds for abolition but also like a secret coin any harry potter fans in here it was like dumbledore's army coin and they and they had the secret coin to receive messages so this coin indicated kind of that you were working on behalf of of abolition she died at age 27
0: well wow. mm-hmm.
1: and of a fever a high fever and I just think God what could she have done with the rest of her life as she lived to be 87 but this often intangible thing called hope this thing with feathers she carved a path for a future that where I could exist where I could marry my husband where we could live in some relative form of freedom she made that possible. So that's what hope is. It's making something possible for the future. It's an act of what radical imagination is when we kind of dream of that future and we pull from the future into the present, almost working backwards. How do we get there? Well, let's work backwards and bring it here. It's literally what Bill calls living between the no longer and the not yet. At some point, we had a title called Living As If. You surprised me with your title. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so hope is living as if something is possible that's not yet possible, or not yet available. Um, A guiding practice, I think, in practicing hope in our daily spiritual practice could be, what is the world I want to live in, and what steps do I need to take to get there? This is a journaling. Right? Or this is just a meditative practice. Make a list. Again, plant a seed. Draw a picture. There's a cartoon that my kids used to watch. It was around when I was a kid, and then it was still around um, when they were these days, but it's called the Magic School Bus, and the tagline of this is, take chances, make mistakes, get messy. Hope is messy. It absolutely is. Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy, who I just love, she has done a lot of work with the, where I'm doing my PhD, and she wrote a book called Active Hope. We've talked about it in here over the years. And she, she writes that active hope is not wishful thinking. It is not waiting to be rescued by some savior. It is waking up to the beauty of life on whose behalf we can act. We belong to this world. The web of life is calling us forth at this time. With active hope, we realize that there are adventures in store, strengths to discover, and comrades to link arms with. Active hope is a readiness to discover the strengths in ourselves and in others, a readiness to discover the reasons for hope and the occasions for love, a readiness to discover the size and strength of our hearts, our quickness of mind, our steadiness of purpose, Our own authority, our love for life, the liveliness of our curiosity, the unsuspected deep well of patience and diligence, the keenness of our senses and our capacity to lead, none of these can be discovered in an armchair without
0: risk. You know, I think the work of Joanna Macy does not get nearly enough attention. Oh my gosh, as, she's a um, woman. <laughs> because what's what's in the culture are reasons that you need to be frightened, um, be scared of this, be scared of that, and that sort of thing.
1: She's acting as our country's counselor, right? Just as the well, ancestor. not enough people are going to her. Yeah, yeah, but the, but but this is where I find like this is extremely hopeful that in every generation there is someone willing to be a voice. This is like a golden thread that's just lent from passed down from generation to generation.
0: You know, I, many of you will remember uh, both Holly and me being so smitten with the work of Ilya Delio. Mm-hmm. And Ilya Delio is about this very thing that we're talking about about a future view. And about her her investment and involvement in the work of Teilhard de Chardin uh, is about future. It's all about the the cosmic Christ that is out there yet to be, and we live into that reality. And I remember when um, Ilya Delio first brought up in a personal conversation with me, and I think Holly was there, that she said, you know, the coming thing is AI. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> the coming thing is AI, you know, if you've not had a chat with the chatbot yet, uh, it's amazing what they can do. And um, for good or bad, it's yet to be determined. But there's a future that we just are not, we don't have any idea of what's out there. But we do have a choice about how we participate in it. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things to kind of embrace is that faith, hope, and love are all risky. And another practice is asking ourselves, what risks am I willing to take? And that's scary for many of us, especially a counterphobic six on the Enneagram. Actually, I'm not risk-averse. I just have to think about all the possibilities um, before I get there. Um, so yeah, yeah, and there are. There are consequences to everything, positive and negative, but there are risks we can take that actually are beneficial positive risks in the world. They don't have to harm anyone. It's said that, um, you know, many of us are familiar with this verse, that of the three. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. I love how it's written in the message. We don't see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing God directly just as God knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. Practicing love helps us see more clearly. We're called to love, first of all, first and foremost, the self. And learning to love the self is a lifetime of work. It facilitates love for the other. As we grow in love and acceptance of the self, we grow in love and acceptance of the other.
0: So I I want to interject here that another way I think our culture is upside down is that we think that we um, have to live in such a way to get somebody to love us. Mm -hmm. And, and, And what the teaching of Jesus is about is that we are in the relationships that we're in I hugely believe that we're all unconsciously where we are supposed to be right now. And we're here not in order to get love. We're here in order to learn how to love. Whatever you're dealing with in your life, your agenda is to learn to love, not to get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Holly mentioned Enneagram. How many of you are familiar with Enneagram. Okay. Um, I would let you know that I am in conversation with Suzanne Stabil to come here as one of our speakers. We're going to arrange that. I'd love to do it this year. I don't know if we can, but she's coming. And um, I just, uh, I'll tell you more about that. It's a very valuable tool mm-hmm. to have in dealing with the very topic that we're talking about. You'll figure out what it is that blocks you mm-hmm. from loving.
1: Well, the, there's the, the work of a, a somatic psychologist I love, Resma Minicum, says, whatever it is that's causing like a brace in you, like, ooh, I resist that, that's where you go. If I resist uncertainty, go towards it. If I resist risk, go towards it. So it's just a noticing, like what causes tension in us and can we relax the field around it and go towards it? That's very counterphobic six advice too. (laughs) Go towards what makes you afraid. (laughs) Um, There are all these beautiful comparisons between the human brain and the neurons in our brain and the way that galaxies expand. The galaxy networks are composed of billions and billions of stars and our brain is composed of billions and billions of neural networks. And this is just what we can observe about both. (laughs) We're, we're complex, and in many ways, we are unknowable. But still, we're called to love even the unknowable parts of ourselves. This is also an act of radical imagination. What don't I know about myself yet that I need to love? What might others see that I can't see that I need to learn to love? I have a practice of not only holding my, a picture of myself as a little girl, but imagining myself as an older woman. And what do I need from her to get me to be here, to get me there, right? How can I get to be 87 years old and call upon that wisdom? Also an act of radical imagination. Is anyone in here over 87? 90, right? Ah, oh, good, good, yay. <laughs> um, we're called also to practice transpersonal love. This is, um, this is hard. Because we tend to want to form intimate relationships with the people we love, but transpersonal love doesn't actually require that we know another person intimately or even directly. It only requires that we love the possibility of them, that we love the possibility of another and live on behalf of not only our spiritual liberation, but theirs too. This trans, the the root trans, means two things. It means across, and it means beyond. So transpersonal love means that we love across boundaries and divisions. It also means that we love beyond the self. Not what I need from you, but I love who you can become. So it's a simultaneous holding of like who a person is and who they can become. There's so much more to us and to the other than we are capable of seeing. And transpersonal love is an invitation to love the unseen pieces of ourselves and another, to love our best natures. So in a nutshell, it allows us to love people that we don't even know yet because of their fallibility, not in spite of it. These two things are necessary to cultivate transpersonal love. It's We need a complex and diverse community to practice love, not a community where we're all the same. Nobody's all the same. But we need intentional pursuit of complex communities in which we can show up and be ourselves and allow others to show up and be themselves. We need a spiritual practice that includes social justice. What does the world require of me? Where do I need to step in? And the third thing is sacrifice. I think again about this asterisked ancestor who sacrificed so much for the world she wanted to live in, and eventually that world was becoming more and more possible. And sacrifice requires... It's, there's, a con, there's an idea that if we sacrifice something that we'll lose and another person will gain, not true. That's like zero-sum thinking, right? That's scarcity thinking. We can sacrifice something of our ego and then we both live into larger selves. Again, call upon Elizabeth Margaret Chandler as my example. She lived, you know, there wasn't Amazon Prime in the 1800s. She had to, like, look for that thread. It wasn't marked with, she made a lot of sacrifices. So the question to reflect on is, what are you willing to give up to create bigger belonging? The last thing I'll close with, oh, it didn't show up on there, is that Cornel West, who by all means is a a phenomenal, energetic, controversial thinker, says that justice is what love looks like in public. And justice is, of course, extremely subjective to define, but I think that it must be oriented towards inclusion and restoration.
0: So uh, your words about transcendent means across and beyond. Mm -hmm. And go back to Carl Jung's definition of love. Mm -hmm. It's what cuts across our lives, Mm -hmm. disrupting them, hopefully waking us up to those realities of faith, hope, and love. Mm No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. See you here next week. Thank you.